Thanks so much. Um, this book really uh, is was nurtured in Birkbeck, and many of the people along the way uh, who I've collaborated with also were um, absolutely uh, inspiring to my thinking as I worked on this book, but it's so nice to present this here at Birkbeck, especially with Louisa, because so much of our early collaboration on the disorder of things um, really transformed this book because when I started working on this 10 years ago, yes, 10 years ago, it's been in the works, um, I really thought it was going to be a very different kind of book. I thought it was going to be uh, uh, a book about narratives of about Ar the Arctic, narratives about exploration because I, my original, my former life being a scholar of romantic literature, that's what I thought I would do and I thought I would start, of course, in 1818, which is a very important year. Uh, in the history of romantic literature, but also in Arctic exploration, because in 1818, the Admiralty famously sent out these four ships, two searching for the Northwest Passage, two for the North Pole, and I thought, ah, yes, I know, I know how to do this. I'm going I'm to read everything they wrote, and I'm going to write about them, and, and it's all going to make sense. And of course, being at Birkbeck, that just didn't happen that way because I real I quickly realized that I didn't um, I wanted a whole new different skill set really to talk about exploration, and I didn't want to just talk about the narratives because what I realized I started being interested in this project because of images like this, which is a very uh, familiar, over familiar image of an Arctic sublime uh, ice scape. There's a ship in peril. There's men struggling against the elements, etc. Um, this probably was the kind of image that drew me to the Arctic. Um, visions like this in texts like Frankenstein and in visual works like these that were very popular in the Victorian period. Um, so I came to the Arctic from this very outsider, very 19th century perspective. But then I quickly realized that this is not the really the most interesting approach to the Arctic, nor the, in, the most in, what really interested me ultimately about the Arctic. But it became itself an interesting problem. Why do we have this? Why did we generate this kind of image of the Arctic that is so that is very much still with us today? And so the book really became about the kinds of uh, forms of cultural knowledge and material knowledge that make this kind of vision so long-lasting till today. Um, the most uh, being a person of the book, I gravitated and latched onto the books, and what became uh, what was immediately so. Evocative was these are books of the Cook voyages from the late 18th century, but the material forms of the books played a very important role in um, shaping this lasting knowledge, this lasting image of exploration um, that we have from the 19th century. And the Cook books were very influential in shaping this particular kind of material book that that official voyages would start to produce in the early 19th century, especially in the Arctic. And so I thought the book was going to be about these kinds of books. Um, but then I realized that these kinds of books that are still shaping our images of exploration are very particular to a particular time and place. And I, I wanted to think about Arctic exploration uh, in a longer historical framework. And so I had to really think outside the material contours of these books. Um, these books were so... Um, had such staying power because they had such rich visual materials. They created a whole um, that were then brought back to London and circulated in different forms. And they really created a kind of iconic, uh, particular visions of the Arctic and the ships, especially the ships themselves. Um, then you have in the 19th century, later in the 19th century, 
In addition to the popularity of the books and their illustrations, you have the popularity of, of artifacts brought back from uh, expeditions, and specifically the, the beginning of my book focuses on the lasting importance of the Franklin disaster of 1845, which generated more and more voyages to the Arctic. And because of the convergence of this expedition disaster with public museum culture, you had a whole new kind of mass audience for, for a particular version of the Arctic that was focused on recovering items from and displaying items from Arctic disasters. So you had more ships going up to generate, to collect more artifacts to display in museums, reproduce in stereographs or in engravings or in, peri- or in periodicals in different formats. So it was really became quite a profitable industry. Um, they were very good at also, because they brought shipboard presses in the early 19th century, they produced shipboard periodicals, newspapers, and manuscript and in print, and then they would reproduce them in London and publish them, John Murray or other presses would publish them so that people in the metropolis can have their own copy of the shipboard uh, leisure activities described in the journals. They would have um, produced all sorts of uh, plays and masquerades and leisure events and spectacles on board the ship. So there was a real connection between what was happening in the Arctic. They were really duplicating, really, uh, sort of London... um, Spectacles in the Arctic, and this fed into this particular vision of the Arctic. Um, these are some of the objects brought back from the Franklin disaster, and I just quickly use them to trace the continuities that, that the lasting attachment that people have formed to these chronometers in particular. Um, this is the first top one, this was the National Maritime Museum. They're widely reproduced as they were dis- um, retrieved from the disaster sites of the Franklin disaster. Reproducing the periodicals. On the right, you see one from the National Museum of Scotland that John Ray brought back, and you see a hole he's cut out to give um, to give souvenirs to his family members. He's cut a couple of circles out and given them as tokens. And then you see in 1985 the ad for a Rolex chronometer that is directly tying itself into the Franklin legacy and uh, to the the diver who uh, sort of spearheaded these recovery efforts of semi-shipwreck looting discoveries that he had in the 1980s. So there's a long tradition of commercializing this particular kind of Arctic disaster, leading us to the fabulous discovery that um, that Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Harper seems to have personally <laughs> made possible there. He's pointing to the discovery of the Erebus that he became very um, attached to politically and very publicly in 2014 when they finally located one of Franklin's ships. So this is the, this is the kind of uh, story of the Arctic that is told, and I wanted, uh, that is so often told. And I, in my book, I wanted to see, I wanted to look at not, the, not telling the story again, but looking at how the materiality of the kinds of objects of our knowledge of this disaster and of this exploration culture shapes what we know. And I, I have a huge debt to Felix Driver, whose book on exploration culture um, was so important to me. And I should say that my book that I've, been, I've worked on for 10 years was called, for nine and a half years of its life, had a different title. And the title of my, my original title was Northwest Passages, 
Arctic disaster and exploration cultures. So exploration cultures, the idea that different times and and places have different kinds of cultures of exploration is very important to the book and and uh, and I've and I learned a great deal from from Felix's work on that. Um, so looking at the 19th century heroic age of exploration, as it's called, I I, I, I focused on the materiality of why we why we think of exploration in the way that we do, and I focused on um, not the explorer, not a list of who went where, who got farther north, who got further west in the search for the Northwest Passage. But um, looking at the mechanisms of authorship and the kinds of books that were produced that we still assemble in these lineages, um, so it became about not not about um, who went where really, but about the different kinds of cultures of authorship that made possible the kinds of objects, books that we have from particular expeditions, and the importance of the quarto book, those like those cookbooks that I showed at the beginning, how how uh, they have such an overarching significance in the way we tell histories of the Northwest Passage. Um, those books were very visually rich. They're very expensive to buy. They're usually produced by uh, institutions like the Admiralty. Um, and they're linked then later in the 19th century to museum culture that wasn't available in the 18th century, uh, public museum culture. So the question became, because I started working in 1818, 1818 is this important day because uh, year because most histories of exploration of the Arctic fall on one or other side before 1818 or after 1818 because it's much easier in a way to talk about 19th century exploration from the resurgence of the naval voyages in 1818 afterwards. Um, but what, what I found was that... Um, that actually it's very difficult to work backwards with these models from the 19th century. Museum exhibitions, large, expensive, quarto-printed, authorized books, authors of expedition leaders as the authors of the books. That, that kind of paradigm of exploration is, becomes harder and harder to find earlier before the 19th century. So that became an interesting puzzle for me. Um, instead of because there's very there is a huge range of differences as you go back to the early modern period between models of authorship, for example. So instead of focusing on explorers, individuals, I started thinking in terms of exploration cultures. And instead of focusing on print as the focus of exploration of what an expedition produces, um, I started to look at different kinds of inscriptions, not just as precursors to print the manuscript version that then leads to print, but as uh, looking at manuscript cultures, different kind of cultures of, of creating knowledge um, that is not, not designed or geared towards reaching print. Kinds of writings that circulate in very closed societies like the Hudson's Bay Company or don't circulate at all, like le- left in particular places, written on rocks, written on ice, and when you start to look at these different kinds of exploration cultures that don't depend on print um, and the kinds of institutions that produce that print in the 19th century, you can see there's actually a lot of interaction with indigenous people in earlier <coughs> contexts um, and that this problem that has to be solved over and over again, there's this problem that we have in the 19th century, it seems, of the blank Arctic, the featureless, empty... the Arctic that is emptied of people by European explorers. 
that vision of the 19th century Arctic that I showed you like in that ship where there's just a ship and a bunch of guys trying desperately to save the ship there's no people living there there's no other signs of occupancy or culture um, that is I think a very 19th century British version of the Arctic and if you look at earlier British voyagers to the Arctic there's a lot more awareness and acknowledgement of encounters with um, people already there and signs of culture already there in other words, the Arctic is really emptied out at a particular time. And before that, you don't always have that same kind of problem. Um, and my overall goal, really, in the book was to talk about the Arctic but, and the history of Arctic exploration in a new way, but also to talk about authorship in a new way, because as a person who studies authorship and um, very much grounded in, in histories of authorship and material text, I wanted to, which are two separate things, I realized... I wanted to offer something about how to think um, historically um, outside of the narratives we have of how authorship becomes a private, privatized, proprietary phenomenon in the 18th century. Because when you look at things like authorship in the Navy, in the Admiralty, authorship in exploration, authorship in corporate circles like the Hudson's Bay Company, in the 18th century or earlier in other kind of chartered corporations who are engaging in exploration, there really isn't, a, a, there isn't an expectation of proprietary individual authorship. I, the captain, will then write and author my comprehensive account of the voyage. That's not, that's not an expectation, and that's not, um, that's not a normal thing before the late 18th century. So to impose that expectation is really to distort the past. And that, that's, that's the larger, I guess, methodological, hopefully helpful thing I can offer. Um, one of the things, I'm not going to read this, all this stuff to you, but one of the ways I tried to do this to work backwards is I started in the contemporary moment of our unfortunate uh, continuing attachment to the Franklin disaster and tried to show how important it is to work backwards and see really to estrange our, what we find in earlier periods and places. And one of the ways I did that was I looked at um, uh, an earlier Arctic disaster for 1719, which was the, the disaster of James Knight, who vanished in 1719 looking for the Northwest Passage. He vanished with both his ships, with everyone on board. Uh, sounds familiar. That's exactly what happened to Franklin. Um, but the difference is that nobody noticed, it seems, that he vanished with his ships. Um, they didn't notice until really the 19th century, it seems. So why didn't anyone notice that they found, they found for, from the 1720s onwards, Hudson's Bay Company found all sorts of things, houses, timber, nails, medicine chests, just like in Franklin, clothing, skulls, bones, eventually ships. But nobody wrote about it. Nobody sent rescue expeditions. No one tried to buy, you know, no one went to exhibit or examine, or they just found them and noted them, but they really were below the threshold of interest. And that interested me, like all of a sudden in the 19th century, they're sending ship after ship for the same kind of stuff, but in the 18th century nobody bothered. Why is that? And um, it has to do with this particular kind of expectation that we have in the 19th century. And in the case of this, this, ex, this guy from 1719, Knight, it had a lot to do with this particular book by Samuel Hearn, which some of you will have known about, called Journey to the Shores of the Northern Ocean, 1795. It was a very popular uh, book of, uh, of exploration of wilderness survival. It's a canonical text in Canadian 
literary history. And one of the things that Samuel Hearn did was he introduced his book by telling the story that he says he heard from two Inuit elders of what happened to the Knight disaster in 1719. And he created such a lasting image of James Knight in 1719 that really became, it made it possible for people in the 19th century to attach a very sentimental version of, of rescue fantasy to Knight in 1719. And he specifically gave this vision of the last two survivors of the night disaster going day after day, he says, um, uh, looking for a ship for, to rescue them. And finally, he said, nothing appearing in sight, they sat down close together and wept bitterly. At length, one of the two died, and the other's strength was so far exhausted that he fell down and died also in attempting to dig a grave for his companion. So Hearn created this lasting vision of a very sentimental uh, Robinson Crusoe version of the last survivors of this Arctic disaster. And this passage and description that is may or may not be based on an actual Inuit encounter um, is then repeated throughout um, popular literature about Arctic exploration in the 19th century. It's repeated in, it's even illustrated in a very tropical setting Somehow, uh, in, uh, throughout the 19th century, it's told aboard ships looking for Franklin. It's made to be a deliberate pre- he's made to be a deliberate precursor to Franklin. And in the, in the process of doing this, of creating this very sentimental early 18th century Arctic uh, victim of Arctic disaster, Hearn and the people who come after him in the 19th century are really rewriting what Arctic exploration was like in the 18th century, and they kind of create they create um, their own precursors. And in the sense that interested me, they're actually obscuring instead of illuminating the past. They're really obscuring it by by seeing it in their own image. And this became this is an interesting problem to me because much of what we look at when we look backwards before the 19th century in, in terms of Arctic exploration seems to impose this, this uh, narrative of continuities and um, how, this, how this was made through books and through exhibitions, how this continuity of the Northwest Passage as a consistent, recurring, coherent thread running through exploration history, that's really what interested me um, in the book. Uh, so before the 19th century, it becomes very difficult to talk about exploration culture in the same way. Um, and and I spent a couple of chapters in the book talking about uh, specifically the corporate culture of exploration that the Hudson's Bay Company um, had because they before they had a very um, since 1670 the Hudson's Bay Company had a monopoly on exploration in the north as they considered the north. And they had a very intense culture of secrecy and uh, close, very closely watched circulation of writings. So not only was there, and maps, and not only was there no expectation of public circulation, but there was a, you were, you were prohibited from publicly circulating knowledge. Um, so it wasn't actually, and you also were prohibited from privately owning knowledge, so it was neither really public nor private as we use those terms today. There was no relic culture, secular relic culture, as there would be in the 19th century. There was no public exhibitionary culture. 
for so that night disaster, which was a Hudson's Bay Company disaster, couldn't really plug into any kind of public circulation or mourning, national mourning, because it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't make any sense in the culture of its day. So, but what's interesting is those manuscripts that they did circulate were actually quite interesting things. And in the book, I talk about them, a few of them. The the, the guy who vanished in 1719, his manuscripts, which he never published because he wasn't an author, but he was a prolific writer. His manuscripts are very interesting. They're very unusual in terms of content, and his clerk produced very unusual title pages that are highly calligraphic. And I talk in the book about how they, how the, how it's important to note and pay attention to the specifics of the of the ornament and the care and the kinds of images and the kinds of materiality that they that the, his scribe who also died with him his clerk rather uh, you know lavished on these manuscripts and um, the content that is the writing the ideas the crazy stuff in the manuscripts is also very unusual for corporate culture um, I also talk about people like James Isham who succeeded Knight in the early 18th century in Hudson Bay and um, on the one hand, I'm trying to I'm painting a very bleak culture of corporate culture in Hudson's Bay Company. No, no self-expression. No, no, no individuality. But then you have these extraordinary experiments in the manuscripts, like this uh, example of ornament, uh, highly ornamented, um, very idiosyncratic manuscripts that apparently no one read for a hundred years. But they're very interesting to think about and to look at. Um, the other kinds of inscriptions that you can find that never were designed to circulate are the uh, petroglyphs, the inscriptions in stone in Hudson Bay that began in the mid-18th century and continued till current day, I guess. But they're, um, they're interesting to think about in terms of inscriptions that are off the page and outside the so-called centers of calculation that require a new way of thinking about Authorship that pays attention not only to manuscript culture but to social authorship and relational ways of writing that aren't necessarily uh, that are that are not and you have to that make you think about who is the intended audience, who are you reading and writing for and with, and who can actually see these things. So um, all these kinds of inscriptions are outside of the, that kind of narrow quarto book that we come to expect exploration. To be to manifest itself as, and then I, then I went back and looked at early modern, the so-called origins of the quest for the Northwest Passage, and the ex, in the uh, books of, and the expeditions of Frobisher, in the 1570s, um, under Elizabeth, and I looked at the original, a lot of the original writings generated by the Frobisher voyages in the 1570s. These were the largest Arctic expeditions ever attempted, still till today, 15 ships at a time at one point. Um, so, and what you have in the early modern exploration context is, again, a, compl- a, a real uh, gulf, often, between the expedition captain and the expectation that he would be an author, a, a proprietary author. So you have a lot of very strange, heterogeneous writings being generated by these expeditions that don't really fit what 19th century um, exploration writings would look like. And then you have someone like Hacklett, 
who comes and produces these um, wonderful compendia of voyages that really work to kind of consolidate and normalize a particular kind of uh, version of those voyages. He cuts a lot of, he cuts, there's a lot of poetry and verse in the original publications. There's a lot of uh, material that embeds it in a social patronage network. Um, often these publications from the Frobisher voyages are not done, are, are presented as though they're involuntary, that is, they're, they're, the manuscripts are stolen or somehow shadily gotten hold of and produced publicly against the so-called author's wishes. So there's all sorts of complications and um, odd things like illustrations that Hacklett takes out, like the sea unicorn um, there, the narwhal. So um, there's all sorts of forces at work that normalize and make a coherent version of Northwest Passage Exploration that the farther back one goes, the more they start to unravel to the point where we have um, Charles Francis Hall in the 1860s searching for Franklin, like so many did, and instead he finds the Frobisher relics from the 1570s. And this, I love this illustration that he produced because he's displaying, he brings them back in his socks and he has to label them relics 1578 because by then the kinds of relics that he brings back look like this and um, they're not very photogenic. Um, they're very, uh, they're archaeologically uh, very specific and useful but unfortunately they don't fit the paradigm of the kind of Victorian exploration industry that was looking for Franklin at the time that produced all those images of chronometers and books and and gloves and personal effects. He brought back sod and lime and shards and lumps of iron. And they, the, both museums lost them all. Both the Royal Geographical Society, sorry, and the Smithsonian Society, it's the Smithsonian uh, Museum, oops, lost everything except for one iron bloom that they found, which was the largest thing, which was like a 22 pound. Thing, all these little things that he painstakingly labeled, boxed up, sent, cataloged, produced catalogs for, they all have gone missing. So I, I, I love that image, uh, that story. I mean, it's sad, but I, I, I find it very telling that there's the far, when you go back, uh, that this effort of collection and consolidation ends in complete dispersal because... This is what you know. This is what they come up with as early the relics of early modern exploration, and they're unable. They, these don't belong in in the in the Hall Franklin era of um, public museums and the sort of hero worshipping, individually explorer focused uh, kinds of collecting that is uh, expected of people in the 19th century. So um, it really is a very fugitive. Quest to find this kind of thread of Northwest Passage uh, exploration. Um, and this is the quote that really kept me uh, going as I wrote this by Foucault, um, that knowledge is not made for understanding, it is made for cutting, that is for incising and deciding and dividing. It's not about, uh, it's not self-evidently there to be understood and consumed. And that's really the experience I found the experience of working on the book and the experience of someone like Hall who's trying very hard to, to recover something. And the more you try to recover it, the more the action of recovery actually uh, creates dispersals. 
And that, to me, is that was what interested me. Um, I'm going to stop there. Thank you.